1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is page 959 in your pew Bible, if that helps. Oftentimes, I've continued the Christmas break in years past from whatever book we've been studying in the morning worship services to consider a, a passage particularly apropos to the beginning of another year. At other times, it seems like the text to which we have come in the course of consecutive expository preaching uh, is indeed providentially chosen for the occasion, just for us. And this year, we find ourselves in that latter scenario. We could not pick a better passage with which to begin this year than 1 Corinthians 13. The Lord is calling us this morning to a renewed commitment to and practice of this very core and summation of his law, the commandment on which all of the commandments, the prophets and the law hang, love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your kind providence, the way that you meet us in your word and give us exactly what we need, the instruction, the correction, the rebuke, the exhortation, all that we need to be, be trained in righteousness and thoroughly equipped for every good work and for that continued work now. We pray, even now, do this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 13, we'll read the whole chapter, though we'll be looking specially at uh, verse 4. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, 
then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. A couple of weeks ago, we gave the entire sermon to the first three verses of this chapter in which the necessity of love was underscored and emphasized as as powerfully as Paul could possibly have said it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. No spiritual gift, not even the ability to speak all the languages of men and of heaven. No knowledge, no amount of religious fervor or power, not even martyrdom. The giving of oneself to the flames amounts to anything. Not to a a hill of beans. All of it is nothing without love. Without love, we are nothing. Without love, we gain nothing. There is hardly a more stringently expressed concept in all of Scripture, as Paul makes here. It's not as though without love, we are a little something. Without love, we are nothing. Nothing. So, of course, the man or woman, the boy or girl in whom the Holy Spirit lives is going to have a very pressing and burning question in his breast. What is love? If without it I am nothing, what is it precisely that I stand in need of? What is love? It's a question that the world's been asking too. Since there is so much rampant confusion about the true nature of of love. Years ago when I was a youth pastor, I took the youth group for a break from their hard labors in Mexico on a mission trip that we were on to the beach. And at that time, in the early 90s, the uh, number one hit in America, and therefore apparently in Mexico, was blaring over the speakers of the local establishment on the beach, the singer wailing and asking the question over and over and over ad nauseum, what is love. Well, let me begin to answer that question by reminding you of something we observed a couple of weeks ago, that the word Paul uses here for love is a very specific one, chosen very carefully. It's the Greek word agape. It was an uncommon word in the culture of that day, but it was brought into the Bible because there was not a common word that could suitably express the love of God in Christ. It occurs in your New Testament 116 times, 75 of them in Paul, and it brings to the Christian's mind the love shown on the cross for sinners such as you and I. It is the love that, as we celebrated just recently again, the love that sent God's Son into the world to suffer and to die with and for us. The love that we Christians experience every day from our Heavenly Father. It is a love for the utterly unworthy. It is a love that proceeds from a God who is love. It's a love lavished on others without a thought to whether they're worthy of this love or not. It proceeds from the nature of the lover 
not from any attractiveness in the beloved. That's the nature of the love about which we read here, the kind of love God has shown us, and now that we are called to show to others, to the church and to the world. But we can even be more specific, which is exactly what Paul goes on to do here in verses 4 through 7 in a series of verbs masterfully collected together here to form a crisp cameo of love. He gives us 14 or 15, depending on how you count them, attributes of love. Only they're not just attributes, or not merely attributes, I should say. When I started studying for this sermon, I was ready. It was my intention to treat these as attributes of love, descriptions of love, until I opened my Greek Bible and found to my surprise... You wouldn't know it from the English, but uh, what Paul gives us here is, is not uh, merely a list of adjectives, words that describe love, like adjectives modify nouns. No, what he gives us here are verbs. Isn't that curious and interesting? Every single one of these is a verb. And verbs, as you remember from your grade school grammar class, very often uh, mean action. What we have here in verses 4 through 7 is not a list of characteristics of love, but rather the actions of love. Which brings me to a point, back to a point I made last time we were here. Love is not a feeling. Love is an action. It's, love is not accidental. Love is not something that happens to you that you sort of fall into an accident. It is deliberate. As the late John Stott put it, Christian love is not the victim of our emotions, but the servant of our will. A loving person will do and not do certain things because of the kind of person that he or she is becoming through the love of God that is shed on his or her heart through, uh, by the Holy Spirit. Writes David Pryor, these qualities, these actions are top priorities for every Christian and every local church. If they are absent, the church will languish and fail, if not disintegrate, however active, however successful, however large it may be. So as we study these verbs here, these actions of love, I want for us to consider them not only on an individual level, but also on the congregational level. What love requires of us, that we may not only be loving individual Christians, but that we may be a loving church, the body of Christ, the living body of Christ. Well, anyway, after I discovered that what we have here is 15 verbs, the next question became, of course, how how am I going to preach these? And while I will not bore you with the details of my uh, internal wrestling and deliberations, I've decided that we shall just take them one by one. And I want to start uh, taking them in that order with two of them this morning. Love is patient. Love is kind, which in keeping with the fact that these are verbs, we might translate this way, love exercises patience. 
Love shows kindness and deals kindly with others. As it turns out, I think the two, these two are actually uh, more like sides of a single coin, as I think we shall see. So first, love exercises patience. The verb here means the opposite of being short-tempered, and it denotes patience with people rather than uh, merely with circumstances. Before I even start to unfold or apply this to us, I, I want first to ask this question, where have you seen love exercised patiently? Where have you seen love exercised patiently? Who has done this in your life? Exercise patience. Let me narrow the question for you. Who has done this in your life perfectly? Now, some of you say God, and others say Christ, and you're both right. Not just the patience, but the kindness, the not envying, the not boasting, the not being arrogant or rude, irritable or resentful, rejoicing the truth, bearing all things, enduring all of them. All of them are seen perfectly in God, who the Bible says is love. So perfectly does he embody and exercise love that John can say in his first epistle, strikingly, God is love. And God's love is often described as patient in the Bible, isn't it? Remember this patience God exercised with his people of old, how long he forbore with our fathers and mothers. Or we think of 1 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And again in Romans 2, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Just to name a couple. But where God, where has God expressed his love more beautifully for us and to us to see in our own terms, so to speak, on our own terms, in the flesh, in this world, than in Christ, who lived love perfectly in our midst during his earthly ministry. So, so as we consider each of these attributes this week, and Lord willing, in the weeks to come, or rather actions, I should say, of love, I intend to start with the character and actions of Christ. Hasn't Paul really drawn for us here a picture of Christ in this chapter? Go anywhere in the chapter and substitute the word Christ for love. And what you have here is a, a picture of Christ, a photograph of Jesus, so to speak. He's the picture, and now, my brothers and sisters, we are to be the reprints. But the great thing is we don't have simply to imagine this picture, this this patience of Christ. No, we, we know it. By experience, we know it. We are the recipients of it. Now, now, of course, I could show it to you. I could show you the love of Christ being exercised at any number of points in the Scripture. We could look at him lovingly exercising patience, patiently loving his disciples when they remain so terribly dull to his teaching and to his message. When they did not understand the parables, what does Jesus do? 
He patiently takes them to the side and explains them to them. When they failed, as they so often did, so gently, so patiently, he corrected them. I love that picture, especially very near to the end, very close to his death, when he had spoken figuratively to them. But now he says to them, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now, you remember how they responded? Well, hey, Lord, we got two swords. (laughs) Duh! And Jesus doesn't say, you idiots! He says, it's enough. (laughs) Patient to the end. And of course, as Peter points out in his letter, one of his letters, though he was reviled, never reviled in return. But I say you have to uh, merely to imagine the patience of Christ or simply read about in the Bible. Christian, you know the patience of Christ. I know you know it because I know you've experienced it. You experience that patience, as a matter of fact, every day. How long the Lord has been patient with us, my brothers and sisters, beyond our really comprehending. In his love for us, he suffers long. Another way to translate this word with us. We continue to break his law, don't we? We've just confessed it to him just a moment ago. We continue to... Let's just say say it. We continue to spit in his face every day, continuing as we do in the sin, the very sins that nailed him to the cross. We forget him for entire days. Sometimes he's not on our mind for days on end. Oh, he is ever mindful of us every moment of every day and continues so patiently with us. He's still saying, you know this? He's still saying on your behalf in heaven right now, Father, forgive them. He is the picture, and and now you are to be the reprints. My brothers and sisters, dear flock, you know your hearts. You know how when you are wronged, when someone hurts your feelings, when you grow weary with the weaknesses of others, you know how patience quickly gives way to temper, don't you? Newton's third law too often governs our hearts that for every slight, every insult, real or perceived, no matter how great or small, there is at least an equal and opposite reaction. Men, has your wife done something you uh, don't like? Has she maybe spoken a harsh word to you? Has she embarrassed you? in some way? And you know this, don't you, from experience. Ladies, has another lady spoken ill of you, not represented you in conversation in the best light, and it's gotten back around to you? Children, parents, 
Have you ever become frustrated with each other? Oh, not the parents and children in this congregation, right? <laughs> That's another congregation. But theoretically, have you ever been frustrated by the actions or words spoken in your home or at work? Have you been dressed down by your boss or demeaned by him or her in front of others? Have you been, have you been cut off in traffic? Patience. Patience. Love exercises patience. It's ready to absorb like Jesus rather than to reflect the insult, the injury. Contrary to Hollywood's doctrine or even the prevailing Greek doctrines of uh, those days in Corinth, the true hero is not the one who strikes blow for blow or whose tongue is so sharp and quick with a responsive insult, a stabbing response. No, love is Patient. Are you patient with others? Or as I promised we would, let's just ask it right now. Is Christ Presbyterian Church patient? Is that a mark of this body here? Imagine... Just think for a moment, what would the church be like if no Christian ever sought revenge for offenses? If no one ever gave the silent treatment to other Christians in the hallway who have somehow hurt their feelings or done something or said something, Imagine what your, your home would be like if the only personal fuses in your home were long ones. You know, when you treat people with patience, it has a striking effect on them, oftentimes, and on those who are looking on. Abraham Lincoln made a lot of friends, and you know he made a lot of enemies, too. One man who became a rather outspoken enemy of Lincoln was named Edwin Stanton. Stanton Stanton just uh, absolutely despised Lincoln. In fact, in print, uh, Stanton called him a low, cunning clown. And on one occasion, he nicknamed him Lincoln the original gorilla. And he said that it was ridiculous for people to go to Africa wandering about trying to find a gorilla when they could easily enough find one in Springfield, Illinois. Lincoln never replied. Lincoln didn't say a word. But then when it came time to choose a war minister for the United States government, Lincoln chose Stanton. People said to Lincoln, what are you, why, why him? And Lincoln simply replied, because he's the best man for the job. His biographer recalls later that the night when the assassin's bullet tore out Lincoln's life in the little room to which the president's body was taken, there stood that same Stanton. 
looking down into the silent face of Lincoln in all its ruggedness and speaking through his tears these words. There lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. He never accepted Lincoln's politics, never agreed with him, but he couldn't resist the patient, non-retaliating spirit of the man. Love is patient. But it is not content. Love is not content merely to exercise patience. There is another side, as I mentioned, to this coin. Second, love is kind. Love is kind. Or well, Back to the verb. Love shows kindness. It acts kindly. This verb occurs only once, by the way, in the entire New Testament. Right here. Uh, the noun kindness appears several times in Paul's writing. And it appears, in fact, as you recall, and uh, you'll remember as soon as I remind you, it appears right next to patience in another list, doesn't it? Remember where that is? Patience, kindness, fruit of the Spirit. Yes, Galatians 5. Christians, we need both. We need patience and kindness. Patience alone leaves a vacuum, doesn't it? If all we are is patience, something is going to rush into that vacuum. It's possible to hold one's cool, isn't it? Some of us are better than others of this, of, of holding our cool until things settle down between family members or neighbors or fellow church members, family members of another sort, but that's, that's not enough. It's not enough for us merely to be patient with each other. Patience willingly endures the injuries of others, but kindness turns around and pays them back with goodness. The Christian ethic not only refuses to return evil for evil, but goes another step and returns good for the evil it has suffered. Where do we learn this? Where do we see this? In our Savior. Jesus is not content, praise God. He's not content merely to be patient with us. God is also kind to us. He not only does not treat us as our sins deserve, he treats us kindly despite what our sins deserve. He treats us the opposite way than our sins deserve. He puts food on our tables and drink. He provides us with clothing and with shelter and the love of friends of a church family. And then he turns to us and he says, do the same. And not only must you love your brothers, and not just your brothers whom it's easy to love, you know, whom you love to love because they're so lovable and love you so much back but all of your brothers and sisters, and not only your brothers and sisters, but to show kindness even to your enemies and to do good to them. And keep in mind, please, that the Christians in Corinth, lest you begin to imagine some sort of dream world in Corinth, the church in Corinth was no idyllic uh, 
church situation or world in which to live. They were, and we've seen this in this series, haven't we? To put it quaintly, they were, they were at each other's throats in Corinth. These Christians were not natural friends who were drawn together because of because they were so attractive to each other into the church in, in Corinth with warm affection so naturally flowing from their bowels for each other. And now Paul is telling them not only to be patient with them, but to be proactive, to reach out to each other with love in the form of kindness. And my brothers and sisters, he's calling us, requiring us to do the same now. This is an amazing call, isn't it, Christians? This is this is a tall order he has for us, some great marching orders. It's not sufficient. It's not, it's not enough for us to be patient with the uh, brother and sister in Christ here in the sanctuary by, um, you know, if they're on that side, sort of walking along that side of the sanctuary and, and avoiding contact with them. No, that, that's not love. Require, love requires us positively to be kind, to, to genuinely be interested and active in that person's life and welfare, to engage them in love. For their ill treatment of you, love gives itself, pours itself out in kindness and service, real service to them. Let me just throw this in for free. You know the fastest and the best way for you to overcome your heart's resistance to a brother or sister, the grudge that your heart wants to hold against your brother or sister in Christ? You know the best way for you to destroy that grudge and even to come to the point where you literally, you can't remember what it was that upset you about them years ago. You know what the best way is to destroy all of that? It's to go up to them, to shake their hand, to tell them that you love them. Or maybe even better, just to turn around and serve them in some specific way. You think of what is fitting. You treat the people your heart resists that way. And your heart will come along. It will. I promise you it will. But if you wait for your heart to move and then follow it, guess what? It ain't going to happen. You lead your heart. Don't follow your heart. Lead it. Maybe you remember from your history studies the the great Armenian genocide of the early 20th century in which more than two to two and a half million Armenians were slaughtered and tortured horrifically to death by the Turks. One Armenian nurse captured by the Turks was forced to watch in horror as her brother was executed by a Turkish soldier. Somehow she managed to escape and later became a nurse in a military hospital. One day she was stunned to look down at the bed she came to in the face 
of the man, the very man who had killed her brother and mistreated their family so badly and tenderly, carefully she nursed that man back to health. One day when his wits returned to him, he looked up and he said to her, I know you. And she said, yes, you do. He said, why Why didn't you let me die? Why didn't you kill me? And this is what she said. I am a follower of him who said, love your enemies and do good to them which hate you. If this is the way, my brothers and sisters, that we're to treat our enemies, and my, how are we supposed to treat our brothers and sisters? Our families and our homes and this congregation, love acts kindly. Does Christ Presbyterian Church act kindly? Husbands, fathers, do you treat your wife and your children kindly, regardless, totally regardless of the way they treat you? Wives, how powerfully you could change the culture of your home, treating your husband kindly. Children, it is, it is not cliche. No matter how much you think it may sound cliche, it is biblical. When your parents say, be kind to your brother and your sister, that's not cliche. That's command. That's Jesus in the voice of your mother. And your father. Now, if you've been listening at all this morning, if you've caught even a whiff of this, then you're thinking, this is huge. I mean, this is big. This, in fact, this is impossible. This is more than I can possibly do. And, and you know what? On all scores, you are exactly right. This is huge. And you can't do it alone. There's a reason that patience and kindness are, as you recalled a moment ago, called in the Scripture, the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit in you that brings about this fruit. Now you must act, dear Christian. You must, as Paul says immediately in that same passage about the fruit of the Spirit, it's your job. You must keep in step with the Spirit. And when you do this, and as you do this, as you do this more and more, it will become for you a sacred habit a way of life for you, of walking, and you a living picture. No, let me put it even stronger than that. 
a mediator of Christ's love to each other. That is what you will become. And that is what you are. As you, in love, exercise patience and show kindness to each other, to, to the church and to the world, none of whom can fail to take notice of real love genuinely expressed in Christ-like patience and kindness. Amen.